We're speaking with Dr. Freeman Dyson, mathematician and physicist extraordinaire. Uh, I want to ask you about something you said in 1972. You, you said that the marriage between mathematics and physics, which, has, which was so enormously fruitful in past centuries, has recently ended in divorce. Could you elaborate on what, what you meant by that? Yes, I mean, that was certainly true, that, that up to about n n 1930 or so, there was a, a very strong contact between physics and mathematics. And there were people like, for example, Hilbert and Hermann Weyl, who were great mathematicians who also kept up with physics and, and did important physics. And I think the last one was probably John von Neumann, who was great as a mathematician and also very, very capable as a physicist. So somewhere around 1930, that stopped, and the physicists went on following their own path, which was becoming much more imaginative, whereas the mathematicians in, at the same time were becoming much more rigid. So you had this whole French school of mathematicians, which rather dominated the, the landscape called Bourbaki. The Bourbaki was an, a real general in the 19th century, a French general who, who had an undistinguished career. They took him as their, as, as their nom de plume. And this French style of doing mathematics was extremely logical, extremely abstract, and going in exactly the opposite direction from, from physics. Became very, very pure and very general and said nothing about the real world. And, and um, so that was the fashion in mathematics. But all fashions change, and it has changed. So in, in the last 20 years, there's been a big swing back. And so mathematics has become much more concrete and uh, largely driven by the computer revolution, I think. I mean, it's so much easier now to do real calculations, and, and, and that brings you back into reality, whether you like it or not. And, and, uh, and in the meantime, of course, physics has got more abstract. So there has been now a, a restoration of the marriage only now, unfortunately, there's a, a, a split as, as, as occurred in physics between string theory and the rest of <laughs> physics. And so the, now the divorce is between string theory and physics rather than between physics and mathematics. Let's, let's, let's go back a little bit and talk about some of those disarmament issues um, we mentioned earlier. I was struck by the fact that you worked for the, R, the RAF in World War II. Yes, I was concerned with the losses of airplanes. Okay. So trying to find out why our bombers were getting shot down. You said over the years that you really un you're unsure that strategic bombing actually worked. Oh, of course it didn't. I know that we knew. Okay. I mean, it was definitely a failure. Because the, the armaments productions and industrial production in Germany continued. Yeah, it actually increased all the time we were bombing. Well, that, that does then bring up the question of why is it the military uh, leaders, I think of like Vietnam, they dropped the, the, the stat thrown out is they dropped more bombs on Laos, rural Laos, than all of the theaters in World War II, which makes you think that bombing has a lot more to do with you know, munitions manufacturers making money than it does in achieving military objectives. Well, I don't know who's to blame, but it certainly is a fact that the Air Force has always retained its belief in bombing, and still does today, and it doesn't work today any better than it did then. Well, uh, looking back at the, the atomic bomb uh, on Japan, um, I note that you, you're convinced that uh, the military leaders of Japan were quite willing to sacrifice countless civilians to bombing, you're noting that there was actually greater casualties in Tokyo and other raids than there were on Hiroshima or Nagasaki. But it was when the Russians joined the attack on them that they knew things were, uh, the, the, the jig was up for sure, and that they, but, but we didn't know that in 1945, which is, uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen that elsewhere. I found it to be a fascinating analysis. 
Yeah, well, of course, they only invaded on the same day that Nagasaki was bombed. So at the time when Hiroshima was bombed, the Russians had not yet declared war. And but it was, it, was more, it was more the Soviets getting involved than it was actually the bombing. Again, yes. again, a failure of bombing. Yes, I believe so. I mean, the evidence comes mostly from the written document that the emperor sent to the military high command ordering the surrender. He there, he there justifies the surrender, which, of course, it was very, very hard for the military to accept. To make them obey his order, he had to give an explanation. The explanation he gave had nothing to do with the bombs. It had everything to do with Russia. That is interesting. Um, you did work in the 1950s using nuclear propulsion for spacecraft, and, and you were instrumental in developing some inherently safe nuclear reactors, which are still used throughout the world to produce some useful isotopes. Do you believe that nuclear power needs to remain in play? Well, I don't say it needs to, to, to remain in play. I don't see why it shouldn't. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. I, I'm new, sort of neutral on the question of nu nuclear power. It's, it's not as dangerous as its enemies claim. It's also not, not, not as necessary as its advocates claim. I mean, it's, it's, we have a choice there. It's not going to solve the problem of energy for the world. It's, just, uh, it's not cheap enough and not convenient enough for many purposes. But it can be very helpful. And of course, the French have managed to do it right. The French generate 80% of their electricity from nuclear energy. They have competent people in charge. It's a state-controlled enterprise. And uh, so they do it well, and the Japanese do it well. We've done rather badly. <laughs> and, and I'm dying to ask you this next question because I've been one, pondering this matter for, th for three decades now uh, myself. Uh, what thoughts do you have on nuclear fusion becoming practical? Well, I have rather strong opinions about that because we have a nuclear fusion project in Princeton, the, the, the plasma physics lab, which has been in the fusion business now for about 50 years. And I have a strong feeling it's not going anywhere. But I think it was a sort of a, a, a strategic mistake was made quite close to the beginning to concentrate on engineering and not on science. So instead of doing basic science to find out how plasmas actually behave, which is a very complicated problem, instead of that, they took a particular design and devoted all their t time and energy t just to engineering that design and all the, the, whole, the whole world has more or less followed suit. So in, in many countries, you have essentially the same design being manufactured or being, being explored. As, and, but these are big engineering projects. So if you, you can't really do anything radically new, that, that they're all essentially following the same design in slight, slightly different details. So that, to my mind, it's a shame but that that happened. And so it, it is in... A, this particular kind of design I, I see as a dead end. If I look at this machine in Princeton, what I see is a plumber's nightmare. It's a, <laughs> a tremendous, tremendous thicket of pipes and plumbing, and, and it's all supposed to be highly radioactive once it gets started running. So how you'd ever fix anything if it, if it f fails is very hard to imagine. And there's one law of nature, which is the number of kilowatts per neutron that you get out of these machines. So you have to, to produce a certain number of neutrons to produce a certain number of kilowatts. What you want is the kilowatts, not the neutrons. Well, it turns out that the exchange rate 
is 10 times better for fission reactors than it is for fusion reactors. So for the same number of neutrons, you get 10 times as much power if it's a fission reactor than if it's fusion. So the fusion starts with a, a big handicap. And I think it's, it's very unlikely that fusion will ever be able to compete with fission, let alone with coal. But I believe in sunshine. I mean, that, to me, is the obvious winner in the long run. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's enormously abundant, and it's well distributed over the Earth. It's clean. It's, it's uh, environmentally benign and all that. I mean, it has all the virtues. The only problem is, at the moment, we don't know how to do it. And th there we need some basic science to find out how to use sunlight cheaply but it will become competitive. It's already becoming competitive with fission, and it will, before long, it will be f competitive with oil. And if the price of oil goes up a bit more, we'll we'll, we'll all be living on solar energy. So I, I think, uh, in the long run, that's almost certain to be the way it goes. You've been very interested in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. You suggested many years back that astronomers might want to look for objects that are radiating a lot of heat which might be due to the fact that civilizations around them are harnessing that star's energy and re-emitting it as heat. And this has really captured the imagination of a lot of science fiction writers. Right. No, I, I wrote this little paper, one page in Science Magazine, with the title, Search for Artificial Sources of Infrared Radiation, and uh, pointing out if, if there are advanced civilizations, whether they want to communicate or not, they would have to radiate away waste heat, and we could see it. But... What happened? The, 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 about 10 years later, we launched a satellite called IRAS, which was a co collaboration between the United States and the Netherlands, I think. It was, anyway, a very good satellite. It did the first sky survey in the infrared, looking at the whole sky with an infrared telescope, a very, very a small telescope, which did a very good job and didn't cost very much. And uh, well, what was the result? The sky turns out to be lousy with this, this these... Uh, <laughs> infrared sources with no way of telling whether they're natural or artificial. And, and uh, so if there are any artificial ones, they're well hidden because there's such a huge abundance of natural ones. The natural objects are, in fact, very young stars which condense out of a cloud of dust, and then after they're born, you have a hot star with the dust still around it. So the dust radiates from the outside. It's warm and it radiates infrared radiation. So it looks just like an artificial object, except it happens to be natural. So that sort of put an end to the search. <laughs> <laughs> there were just too many. And we've done sky surveys since then, and we've found more and more and more of them. So now we know about we have millions of these objects. They're called cocoon stars because they, they are sort of a star in a cocoon of dust. And maybe some of them are artificial, but we've no way of knowing. Well, that's not going to pan out. It sounds like that approach. But where, where do you see uh, SETI going in the next couple of decades? And, and would you care to give odds that we'll find a signature of life around, around some other stars? Well, it's a very different question whether you're looking for life or whether you're looking for intelligence or uh, advanced industry and so forth. I mean, yeah. first of all, we should go on looking. I mean, it's, looking is very cheap. People have a false idea that this is very expensive, but it's not. Actually, it's, it's extraordinarily cheap because data processing now is so cheap. It's essentially, you take an existing telescope and use it just as, as so parasitically while it's doing astronomy. You can use it also for looking for alien signals just by processing the data in a different way. So it's, it's actually very cheap. And 
we should certainly go on looking or listening. Uh, but that's uh, looking for aliens to it, uh, who reach the stage of in, in industrial societies and such. But uh, a, a totally different problem, of course, is looking for primitive forms of life did, which did not develop technology. There's just looking for slime molds and, and, and vegetation and things of this kind. Of course, we, we, we have very much less powerful tools. Essentially, you have to go fairly close and orbit around an object in order to search. So you can only do that within the solar system. But so it's a two, different, two very different games. So I would say, uh, in the case of alien civilizations, I would say the probability we find one is really quite small. I, w I, w I would say certainly it's worth looking because it's, it's, it would be so important if you found one, but I wouldn't bet on it. But on the other hand, when you're looking for life, I think the probability is very much better, only we don't yet have the tools to go outside the solar system. Our guest today is Dr. Freeman Dyson, physicist and mathematician. I was always intrigued, too, by the argument that if we wanted to have a conversation with an alien civilization, you know, the fact that it's like 10 light years or 20 light years to say hello and get the message back. But somebody's pointed out with recently that no one thought of an Internet existing out there in space that we might be able to just tap into, which is sort of an intriguing notion. Oh, yes. If, and if we did find a communicating society, it would be a, a real uh, a change in our whole way of thinking. I mean, it would really be a, a, for philosophically... Uh, the most important thing we ever found, and, and so it would. Uh, it certainly, uh, it, it probably would be totally different from anything that the science fiction writers have imagined. I'm I'm always amazed that that, in spite of all of the futurists looking peering into the future, no one saw the internet coming. Right. No, we we're not good at imagining beyond the end of our noses. And <laughs> I I got quite a laugh out of your advice that if we're going to go searching for life around Jupiter's moon Europa, which which everyone believes has an ocean under its surface, you point out pretty difficult to drill through into the icy surface. We ought to look for some freeze-dried fish orbiting nearby from some meteor collisions on the surface, which I thought was really outside-the-box thinking. <laughs> no, that's still true. And, and uh, you might find them not only in orbit around, around uh, Europa, you, you probably more likely find them on the surface. If they ever get kicked out of the ocean, they're more likely actually to land on the surface than to go into orbit. And either way, you'd still find them. And, and I hope we look. As regarding life here on Earth, you're, you're less worried than many people are over the issues of global warming, and, and you've noted that, it, to your mind, it's maybe less of a threat than the one perceived by, by people like James Lovelock. Indeed, yes. No, I think there's a tremendous lot of scare stories going around about global warming, which I think are totally false. Well, uh, you've, you've been advocating for some time now we could do more to sequester some CO2 emissions. Uh, what do you propose we, we might do? Well, mostly just growing plants, and uh, we don't know yet what the limits are, but we know we can produce fuel from sunlight using photovoltaic silicon films exposed to sunlight and making electricity, and the electricity you can convert into fuel. So you can make chemical fuels from sunlight with something like 15% efficiency using silicon. The best that living plants can do is about 1%. Sugar cane is about 1% efficient. So there's a factor of 15 between silicon and living plants. So I think we can probably recover most of that factor of 15 by redesigning plants. So you imagine you could 
with genetic engineering, produce a plant with silicon leaves. It'd be black instead of green, but otherwise like a plant. It could be, say, 10% efficient instead of 1% efficient. That would make an enormous difference. It would mean we could generate fuel from sunlight using only one-tenth of the land, which is crucial because we need the land for growing food. So I would say that could, in fact, change the whole nature of the game. I look forward to it happening. It's, um, I mean, biotech is going ahead very fast. We are learning how to design things biologically. And that looks like a winner. Of course, it's stupid to believe anything you say about that because science is unpredictable. And, but nevertheless, I still believe it. And well, many people are worried about genetic uh, modifications of organisms. Uh, at your talk here at UCD last week, you noted that uh, that if this process can be decentralized, it might prove to be a, a greater boon to mankind than leaving it in the hands of, say, Monsanto. Yes, and I believe this is going to happen. It happened with computers. That's why the Internet has turned out to be such a success, that everybody has it, or is everybody is has, has access to it. It's become user-friendly, and uh, the whole computer business has gone in that direction. Instead of being huge and... and owned by big corporations, it's become something domesticated and personal. And I think that will happen to biotech too, as soon as the average gardener or farmer gets hold of this technology, when it becomes available to everybody, it will be much less feared and, and much more effective. Uh, a point that you mentioned in the same talk at UCD last week, it's really, uh, for me, as an undergraduate degree in biology, I just find this to be really fascinating. There's much thought now that, um, looking back at the early development of life here on Earth, that genes may have been swapped around much more freely. You sort of refer to it as sort of a pre-Darwinian rules of the game uh, operating, which, uh, which in the, I mean, just from the start, that's very fascinating to contemplate that, 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 that in the initially, as life got going, things weren't working the same way they have for the past couple billion years. Right. But it could be that we're not even recognizing the fact that genes are still to this day swapping more easily between species. I mean, people have brought that point out. That's true. And, of course, we find more and more of that when we look hard. But then, then my question would be, you're very optimistic about genetically modified organisms, but if genes do get around perhaps more easier than we thought, isn't there the possibility of some superorganism wreaking havoc with our ecosystem? Well, there's always that possibility. <laughs> and, and, of course, we are the... the the one that's wreaking the havoc. <laughs> Point well taken. So you can't get away from that. I mean, the, 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 I think the, 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 the fundamental disagreement between me and most of my friends is just, I don't believe in a risk-free world. I mean, there's no way you can avoid taking risks. And doing nothing is just as risky as doing something very often. And, and in any case, there are risks almost everywhere. And, and you have to balance them. You can't just avoid risks by being cautious. You said that you're proud to be a heretic, and, and heretics who question scientific dogma are, are quite valuable. But I was stuck by a story about your days working for the RAF. You recommended that they take the gun turrets off some of the bombers so they could fly faster since speed was so essential to their defense, but I gather your suggestion was a little bit too novel for the bureaucracy. Well, yes, it went away. I mean, it, was, it wasn't just the bureaucracy. It went against the, the whole ethos of the Air Force. I mean, we've had the same problem with the, with the United States Air Force. I mean, it was obvious to scientists many, many years ago that it would be sensible to fly planes without pilots. The pilot is the most expensive part of the plane, and it, in fact, restricts the kind of maneuvering you can do. It, 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 and you'd be much better off having pilotless planes. But that's unthinkable to these people who run the Air Force. 
since that's the way they live. And, and uh, so it's been a culture clash. Now, fortunately, the, uh, the, the Predator, of course, is, is, is manufactured by the same company I work for, and so uh, should put a commercial <laughs> note at this point. This is a commercial, but uh, <laughs> anyway, the Predator turns out to be the most effective airplane, and, and, and it doesn't have a pilot. You wrote about the role of failure and pointed out it's essential to progress, really, that you cite the example I thought was quite illuminating of the bicycle. It was developed trial and error, and you noted that formulating how a bike works mathematically is actually pretty hard, but we do have terrific bikes through tinkering. Right. That's true, of course, of many sciences, particularly biology. And, and I have to add another quote that I, that I really liked at this point. You you said, a good scientist is a person with original ideas. A good engineer is a person who makes a design that works with as few original ideas as possible. There are no prima, prima donnas in engineering. Well, in fact, I believe there are a few. But, <laughs> <laughs> but perhaps shouldn't be. Yeah, there are fewer than in science. Well, uh, we mentioned some of the remarkable people that, you, that you've met over the years, but you've undoubtedly met quite a few more. Are there any other people you'd maybe like to say a word or two about uh, before we close today? Well, I'd like to talk maybe about Edward Teller since he's Please. Very, very much maligned. And, and he, I, I worked with him on this small nuclear reactor, which was tremendous fun. And, and so he was a, a, a very delightful person to work with. He'd always come up with some crazy idea every morning, and I would then demolish <laughs> it during the afternoon, and, and, and then we'd, and we'd start again the next day. And he was a, a very emotional character. He would throw tantrums if, if, if you didn't agree with him, and it was like sort of collaborating with a five-year-old, but I, I enjoyed it enormously. And he was very imaginative, and he got along extremely well with kids. And I... Uh, I inherited one of his friends, which is something I treasure very much. There's a kid who is called Raymond, who is uh, writing emails back and forth with me at the moment, and a, a tremendously gifted kid who is actually in hospital with cancer. And I inherited him from Teller, in fact. I mean, he was a friend of Edward Teller, and, uh, and then when Teller died, uh, uh, he handed him over to me. And, recommended he get in touch with me since he thought, and, and it, I've been, it's just been wonderful. And so I owe, tell, I owe that to Teller. And that's the kind of person he is. I mean, you know, he's, I hardly, it's hard to think of him as dead because he was so much alive. And he was an intensely human person. And uh, it was a great tragedy that this, this fight over the hydrogen bomb sort of made everybody go sour on him except for a few faithful friends, of which I am one. Well, I guess it would be there a final question today. Uh, Dr. Dyson, you noted to be really a, a prominent optimist, and, and I'm, I was wondering what is it that makes you optimistic that mankind can, can solve the problems which, which to so many of us just seem to loom before us today? The reason is simple. I grew up in the 1930s, and every one of these problems which we have today was already there in spades in, in, in 1930s. It was, things were much worse in the 1930s than they are now. And, and if, if I look back, I mean, England, first of all, was heavily polluted, much, much worse than it is today. We had black soot all over London, so if you went to London for half a day, your shirt collar was black. And, and the, 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 the rivers were totally filthy. Nobody could swim in the rivers. And so the pollution was a huge problem. We had the Great Depression, the economy was in terrible shape, 
and maybe this one we're having now may be just as bad, I don't know, but anyway, that one, anyway, was bad enough. So we had, uh, we'd had, that went on for years and years. So it was a very bad time economically. And worse than all, there was Hitler. There was, uh, we'd gone through World War I, which was a terrible tragedy for England. And I mean, like, World War I for England was like the Civil War for America. It was sort of the tragedy that everybody looked back to. And, and that was quite recent. And, and now there was Hitler and we were going to have to fight the same damn thing over again. And that uh, really was depressing. And we didn't expect to survive. I mean, I remember uh, we had anthrax bombs. We didn't, we didn't know about nuclear weapons. But we did know about biological weapons. And we expected it would be a biological war. And Aldous Huxley had written his book, The, the Brave New World, about anthrax bombs. And, so that was very much in the air. So we had every reason to be gloomy, and certainly we were gloomy, and after all, we survived. And so after that, the problems we have now are serious, but not that bad. Well, Dr. Freeman Dice, has been a great pleasure to speak with you, and I hope this won't be the last time that we have a chance to chat. Thank you. I hope so, too. I always ask people, do you wish that the interviewer would, would have asked you about some, something so you can talk about it? If you <laughs> want me to ask you, that we, we could just we could, we could do that. Yeah, and I think you did very well. And Thank you, sir. It was no, very good questions. No, I, I, I feel that I, I'm, I'm an, uh, an orange which has been squeezed dry. And <laughs> very, okay. I also am very grateful to you for doing the homework. You obviously have read a lot that that showed. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.